If you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Today we're going to be looking at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. What is your life about? In the classic holiday classic, A Christmas Carol, an old, grumpy, and stingy man named Ebenezer Scrooge had a life that was entirely focused on money. Family, hobbies, friends, fame, even luxuries were not important to him. His life was focused on wealth. In the famous Greek story, The Iliad, it tells a tale of a massive war that erupts between two different kingdoms. And the mightiest of the warriors in that tale was a man named Achilles, who fights to gain glory and fame in battle. His decision to join and continue in the war is all based on his great desire to have a reputation that lasts forever. His life was all about fame. In a TV series, my wife and I recently started watching the show, tells the story of an older retired couple who discover a fantastical secret. But throughout the show, the main focus of the husband is on taking care of and loving his wife. Everything he does revolves around his wife. The things he says, the actions he takes are all focused on her. His life was all about his wife. What is your life about? Is it about your job? Your career? Is working on the farm or working at the office or working in the shop the main thing your life is about? Or is it about your friends, the the people you hang out with at school or at the homeschool group or the people that you grew up with and still see today in town? Is your life focused on them? Or is your life focused on being comfortable? Is the emphasis of your life about removing all painful and stressful conditions? Is it about relaxing and being protected from harm? Or is your life primarily focused on your children, on rightly raising and supporting your kids, on taking care of them and showing them love? Is your life mainly about them? Or is your life about possessions, or about sex, or about politics, or about your hobbies, or about your health? What is your life about? Well, most of the things I have mentioned are not necessarily bad for you to have in your life. In fact, most of them can be good things to have and be involved in. But according to Scripture, the, the thing that we should most be focused on in our life, the thing that our entire life should ultimately be about is God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
And that was merely, merely summing up the, the whole Old Testament teaching that God was the only one that we should worship, that we should be looking to God and God alone as the one who is supremely valuable and worthy of all our obedience, all our trust, all our delight, and all our praise. Our life should be about God. And according to the passage that we're going to look at today, the more we focus our life on God, the better it will be for us. The benefits far outweigh the costs of having a God-centered life. But not only will this passage tell us about the benefits of having a life that is focused on God, but it also shows us how to have that kind of life. So please, if you would, look with me at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, as together we look at developing a God-centered life. Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart Keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Lord God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for its clarity. And I ask God that as we walk through this passage, that you would help us to be changed by this passage. That you would help us to grow and develop a life that is focused primarily and ultimately on you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week my family was spending some, some time in Kansas City on vacation and went to church at the church I had grown up at. And so instead of being in the pulpit, I was sitting in the pew. And because my mind can sometimes be like a, a dog that's surrounded by different squirrels, I took notes to keep Focus. And it was very helpful. Now, I understand that note-taking is not for everyone, but if you have a mind that wanders like mine, taking notes can help you stay focused sometimes. So, if you'd like, there's an outline of our sermon on the back of your bulletin, and it's meant to help you take notes if that is helpful to you. And the outline of our sermon shows that this passage gives us six calls to act. Six things that we are commanded to do that help us develop a God-centered life. 
And after each of those instructions were given some motivation to follow the commands, it shows how following the commands is going to benefit us. If you want to develop a God-centered life, this passage gives answers. And we're going to start by looking how we are to, number one, remember God's doctrine. Remember God's doctrine. Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2 say, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Solomon, the main author of Proverbs, writes this as from a father as to a son. This is not the, the dry words of a, of a disinterested academic professor writing to a student. No, this is, this is the words of a loving dad to his son. And this counsel has been written down for all of our benefit as it is part of the inspired word of God. And therefore it is not opinions or suggestions, but as this passage says, this is teaching and commandments. The word teaching is translated from the Hebrew word Torah, which means law, direction, or instruction. It was the divine doctrine that Solomon had taught and would continue to teach. And Solomon told his son, Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. It's easy to forget things. If I don't repeat a name several times after meeting someone, it's gone from my mind within about a minute. I don't always remember the items my wife asked me to pick up from the store. I have a lot of trouble remembering my family's birthdays, and I would probably have trouble naming all 50 states and where they all should be located. All of us forget things, and sometimes our memories only hold on to things that we believe are important or that we intentionally try to remember. Well, Solomon wants his son to remember his teaching, so he urges his son not to forget it. Instead of forgetting it, Solomon tells his son to let your heart keep my commandments. The heart in the Bible is referring to the, the center of your personality, the core of who you are. The, the heart is your, your thoughts, your, your emotions, your desires, your inner decisions. It's who you are on the inside. Solomon is telling his son that he needs to keep Solomon's commandments in his heart. The son needs to store up and guard the wisdom Solomon has given him. Rather than the teaching slipping away like so many of the high school algebra rules we have all forgotten, Solomon wants his son to keep this divine wisdom in his heart, to not let it get away. That God-given wisdom... That knowledge that gives a person skill in living needs to take up residence in our hearts. We need to intentionally memorize the truth so that we can use it in our lives. Solomon didn't want his son to just memorize this truth so he could ignore it. It was meant to, to change him, and it's meant to change us. So we must not forget it. 
And the changes that wisdom makes in our lives leads to some really great benefits. Benefits that should motivate us to keep these commandments in our hearts. We see that in verse 2, which says that for length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Knowing and applying wisdom results in life and peace. Now, this does not guarantee that believers who are wise will always live to they are grandpas and never die young. Wise and righteous Abel died young as he was murdered by foolish and wicked Cain. And Jesus Christ, the wisest person who ever lived, died before he turned 40. But throughout Proverbs, the idea of life is something that lasts beyond physical death. It is an abundant life in fellowship with God that does not end when our physical body ceases to function. Those who walk in wisdom will not ultimately fall prey to death, but will have life that continues We see that in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 28, that says, In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Since the ultimate destination of the wise is life. Physical death is not the end for them. Physical death will not lead to eternal death for the righteous, which is why Proverbs 14.32 says that the righteous finds refuge in his death. Now Solomon, Solomon's not stupid. He is aware that every human eventually faces physical death and that many wise people die young. Solomon had read Genesis. He knew about Abel. And yet over and over and over again throughout the book of Proverbs, Solomon guarantees life for those who live out the wisdom of God and promises that they will ultimately escape death. Life is not the possible reward for the righteous. Life is a sure thing. Which means that this life that is Promise is a life that goes beyond the grave. This is eternal life. And if God's wisdom is leading you to life, it means that God's wisdom is leading you to the promised Savior, Jesus Christ. The book of John says that Jesus is life, and that eternal life rests in Him alone. Living out wisdom leads to faith in Jesus as eternal life can only be found in Him. So, if you keep God's wisdom in your heart, living out the truth of what God says, you will be given length of days and years of life. Your life will be extended. Not necessarily your physical life, but your spiritual life will go on. And even in physical death, you will have life. And Proverbs 3 verse 2 says that this life given will be filled with, with peace. Meaning no more hostility. No more conflict. 
patience. You will have inner contentment, delight, joy, peace will characterize the life that you're given. Isn't that a pretty good motivation to not forget God's doctrine? Isn't that a wonderful reward for keeping wisdom in your heart? The benefits of life and peace should push us to remember God's teaching. And the more divine wisdom we have in our hearts, the more our life will be centered on God. Well, we are just at the beginning. The next way we are to develop a God-centered life is number two, practice God's disposition. Practice God's disposition. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 say, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. If we want to have our lives focused on God, then we need to follow God's example. And the command Solomon gives at the beginning of verse 3 is a description of how our God acts. It says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Well, if you look in Exodus 34, verse 6, You'll see a famous verse that's repeated several times where God told Moses what some of his attributes were, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness are part of what characterizes God. They are a part of his general disposition towards his people. And we are to follow that disposition by having steadfast love and faithfulness in our own lives. Steadfast love is translating the Hebrew word hesed, which is referring to extreme mercy, loyal love and kindness. And faithfulness is referring to our need to be reliable and true in what we say and what we do. In other words, we are to live out wisdom. To follow God's example, Solomon commands his son to let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. These character traits are not to leave us. We are not to let them abandon us. Instead, the end of verse 3 says, bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. Just like a precious necklace is bound around your neck, we are to metaphorically bind the application of wisdom to us, valuing it and keeping it close. We are to write them on the tablet of our hearts, inserting them fully into the core of our being. We are to practice steadfast love and faithfulness in our life, following our God's example. And if you do that, verse 4 says, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. God will approve of what you do. And ultimately, all mankind will as well. 
You will receive God's favor, His approval, and though some on earth may hate you right now for following God, at the end of time, your good reputation will be affirmed by all. Ultimately, if you practice steadfast love and faithfulness, you will receive approval. Following God's example leads to gaining God's approval. If you want to develop a God-centered life, this is a good way to start. But if you want to continue living a God-centered life, you will have to believe His promises and rely on Him. Which leads us to our next point, number three, trust in God's direction. Trust in God's direction. Verses 5 and 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. We are, all of us here, naturally prideful people. We think very highly of ourselves and are often arrogantly independent. We think we know best. But developing a God-centered life means that we must transfer the trust that we have in ourselves and move it into trust in God. Verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, And do not lean on your own understanding. We are not to depend on our own understanding of things. Our personal opinions and our philosophies about life are not to be trusted. Instead of relying on our own sin-stained, mortal, mistake-prone selves, we are to put our trust in God. This is not a partial dependence, not a halfway on the fence, maybe I'll kind of rely on him sort of deal. No, you must trust in the Lord with all your heart, all of who you are, the entire core of your being must trust in the Lord. Now, I know that trusting in someone That can be hard. Because I'm sure that every single person here has faced disappointment as the people around you have failed you in different ways. But if you trust in the Lord, you're trusting in the creator of the entire universe. You're trusting in the perfectly holy and just God. The all-powerful all-knowing, good, and gracious one. And trusting in the Lord is trusting in the one who sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die to be our Savior. The one who sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to be the perfect sacrifice for us. The one who raised Jesus from the dead so that all who repent and put their faith in Jesus alone can be saved from eternal death. That is someone who deserves our exclusive and our total trust. And in verse 6, 
It says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. If we're putting our full trust in the Lord and we are acknowledging him in all that we do, meaning we are bringing him into all of our decisions, we are seeking his will in all we do, we are submitting ourselves to his way of doing things, we are trusting that he knows how to best govern our lives. If we do that... He will make our paths straight. Meaning God will cause us to live rightly. He will keep us on the correct path. Through the application of wisdom, God will effectively direct the way that you live. Trusting in God leads to a God-controlled life. If you want God to be the center of you, who you are, you must Trust Him. But if we are to truly trust in God, we must trust in the right God and the character and power of that God that we see in the Bible should bring us fear. And that leads us to our next point. Number four, fear God's deity. Fear God's deity. Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8 say, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Verse 7 opens with another exhortation for us to humble ourselves. Solomon says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Instead, we are to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, the truth that we need to fear the Lord is all over the book of Proverbs, and we've already bumped into it several times over the last few sermons. Fearing God means to be in reverent awe of the all-powerful creator of heaven and earth. But it also means to have a genuine fear of the holy God who has the power to destroy people in hell for all eternity. We don't fear God because he's some kind of an out-of-control deity, But he is mighty, he is just, and that should give us pause. The children's classic, The Lion, The the Witch and the Wardrobe, I believe gives us a a helpful illustration of how we should fear God. The the book is a fantasy set in the, the mythical land of Narnia, a land that's filled with dwarves and witches and all sorts of talking animals. And the greatest of the animals, the mighty and righteous king of Narnia, is the lion Aslan. Well, a few children stumbled into Narnia and eventually met a talking beaver couple who told them about this lion king. And while they were describing Aslan, one of the children asked, Is he safe? Well, Mr. Beaver replied right away, Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And in the same way, the all-powerful creator of the universe is not safe. He is incredibly mighty and he is deadly dangerous to those who oppose him. But he is good. 
And it's right to have a healthy fear of that mighty and fierce God. And that fear helps us to turn away from evil. When we are standing in amazed, reverent awe at the greatness of our God, and in fear at opposing the Holy Creator, we will turn away from evil. And when we do, verse 8 says, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Fearing God, turning from sin, brings physical healing to our bodies. Now, this does not mean that if you are truly following God, you will never have physical difficulties. The entire book of Job is about a godly and righteous man who has a lot of physical difficulties. And God made it clear that his physical problems were not a result of his personal sin. Physical illness, disease, and disabilities are not always the result of sin, and many godly and righteous people will face physical suffering. But Scripture is also clear that sin can result in physical issues. When King David committed adultery and murder and had not yet confessed or repented of those sins, he experienced physical problems. And Psalm 32 talks about the physical pain and and, and loss of physical strength that came as a result of his unconfessed sin. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul talks about some believers who were partaking in the Lord's Supper in a sinful manner and were therefore judged by God. And Paul says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So, though the Bible is clear that physical illness does not automatically mean that a person's illness was a result of their sin, sometimes illness can be a result of sin. And Proverbs 3, verse 8 says that when you turn towards fearing God and turn away from evil, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Turning from sin to God can bring physical healing to your body. Illnesses that are a result of sin can be cured and your strength restored when you turn to God. Also, Proverbs is clear that even those who are not ill because of sin can still receive some physical help when their heart is focused rightly. Proverbs 17, verse 22 says, A joyful heart is good Medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Having your heart focused on the mighty God will bring inner encouragement that can result in some physical benefits. I'm not saying that godly people can eliminate all their physical pain and suffering. That's not what the Bible says. But I do believe that we can receive some physical refreshment when we are focused on God. Well, we've already hit upon a lot of things that should motivate us to focus our attention on God, and we have seen several ways to develop a God-centered life. And the next one we're going to look at can be one of the most difficult and yet rewarding ones.
We come to number five, honor God with your dollars. Honor God with your dollars. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We are to honor the Lord, show Him reverent respect, esteem Him of having, of having supreme value. And the specific way verse 9 tells us how to honor God is with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. The money in your bank account is not ultimately yours. It's God's. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is the one responsible for every single penny that has ever made its way into your account. And one way we give him honor is by giving back some of what he has graciously given to us. We are to honor God by giving of our wealth. And notice that God doesn't want our leftover table scraps. We are to honor Him with the first fruits of your produce. The first fruits in the Bible symbolize the best of your crops. We are to honor God by giving Him the best of our wealth. We are to show how much we value Him by the money that we give. Now, this does not mean that God needs your money. He doesn't. But God wants your heart. And your checkbook reveals what your heart is focused on. So, what are you doing with your money? That may seem like an awkward and overly personal question to ask, but it's a necessary question. If you want to develop a truly God-centered life, you must honor God with your wealth. And the good news here is that if you do Verse 10 says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. In other words, you will receive an abundance in return. This is not saying that everyone who honors God with their money is going to be filthy rich. This is not a be godly and God will give you gold guarantee. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, and Proverbs 28, verse 6, both talk about a godly man who is poor. But it is saying that God will be generous to those who are generous. Those who honor God with their wealth will be blessed by God. They will receive an abundance. Sometimes that reward will appear on earth, and sometimes that reward won't be seen till heaven. And those rewards in heaven are worth the investment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Honor God with your wealth, 
and God will graciously bless you with more, whether in this life or the next. Well, Solomon has laid out some very clear instructions on how you are to develop a God-centered life. He's given us some excellent motivations to follow his instructions as he described the rewards that we are to receive. But here's a hard truth that we all need to recognize. We are often going to fail to do all the stuff that we just read about. Sometimes you're going to forget God's wisdom. Sometimes you're not going to follow God's example. Sometimes you're going to doubt and not rely on God and rely on yourself. Sometimes you're going to turn towards evil rather than fear God. And sometimes you're going to fail to honor God with your money. But like a caring father is going to lovingly use discipline to help change his son, God will lovingly discipline us as well. And that leads us to our last point. Number six, accept God's discipline. Accept God's discipline. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son... Do not despise the Lord's discipline, or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. We are going to sin. Even after putting our faith in Jesus, even after we've been changed by the Holy Spirit, we will still have struggles with sin. So we're going to need to be corrected. We're going to need to be put on the right path again. So we're not to despise, not to reject the Lord's discipline. And we're not to be weary of His reproof. We are not to resent or loathe God's correction of us. Instead, we should rejoice. For verse 12 says, For the Lord reproves him whom He loves As a father, the son in whom he delights. Just as a loving father disciplines his son, God's discipline of us is a display of his love toward us. Without God's correction, we cannot spiritually grow. Without God's discipline, we cannot develop a God-centered life. But because God loves us, he will rebuke us when we fail. Because he delights in us, he will lovingly correct us and put us back on the right path. I love my two sons. And sometimes, often, my sons sin. So often I must take out a paddle and go have a talk with my sons about their sin. For the oldest one, I have to tell him what he did wrong. Excuse me, I I have him tell me what he did wrong, and then I ask him what he deserves because of his sin. 
then I administer the necessary discipline. And then every time after spanking my son, I tell him that I love him and I give him a big hug. And I often will tell him that the discipline is meant to help change his behavior and show that there are consequences for his sin. I discipline my son because I, I love him and I want him to grow and change. And according to Proverbs, God disciplines us for the exact same reasons. So when you sin and you experience some of the discipline of the Lord, don't resent that discipline. Don't be angry with God. Instead, accept the discipline, receive it, and be changed by it. And rejoice that you have a God that loves you enough to discipline you. Scripture is clear that our lives should be about God. Careers, hobbies, sex, money, friends, family, possessions, comfort, none of those things should be our ultimate and primary focus in life. Like the planets orbit the sun, our lives should revolve around God. And in God's goodness to us, He has given us ways to develop a God-centered life. We are to remember God's doctrine, inscribing God's wisdom onto the core of our being. We are to practice God's disposition, living out wisdom by following the example of our God. We are to trust in God's direction, abandoning our pride-filled self-sufficiency and relying solely on the Lord. We are to fear God's deity, standing in reverent awe of His greatness and fearing His holiness and power. We are to honor God with our dollars, giving Him the best of our wealth. And we are to accept God's discipline humbly receiving the loving correction from our Heavenly Father. If we do those things, we will receive life, peace, and God's approval. The way we live will be put on the right track. Our body will be refreshed and we will be given an abundance from God and we will be shown great love from the God who delights in us. Those are the benefits that every believer receives when they strive to grow in their focus on God. But the biggest result is that our lives will be oriented towards the Creator. We will develop a God-centered life. Lord God, we thank You for that truth. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark about how we are to focus our lives on you. But God, we know it's hard. We do struggle with sin. We do struggle with remembering you and trusting you and thinking about you and following you. And I ask God that you would give us the strength that we need 
to turn our heart, to turn our thoughts, our desires, our feelings towards you. We do thank you, God, that you've made it clear that it's worth it. That there are great benefits when we turn to you. There are great rewards when our life is about you and not about anything else. I ask, Lord God, that you would work in us, that you would encourage us, convict us, and bring us great joy as we develop more and more a life that is focused on you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.